for any of you who don't know who she is, she's a table leader at table number five back there. Isn't she amazing, you guys? Yeah, okay. All three of you back there agree? Okay. Um, so anyway, we're looking forward to hearing her, and I'm going to let you take it away. All right. Thank you. Well, in preparing for today, I decided that I really like researching, but preparing to speak is not my favorite. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's just open in prayer. Dear Father, I thank you so much for uh, these women. Lord, I thank you for this study of your word. Father, I pray that through my words and through our discussion later, Lord, that you would really work your truth into each heart, Lord, exactly how you want to do that today. In your name, amen. Okay, to uh, get started, we're going to just kind of review a little bit um, from uh, uh, what we've been studying so far, and I'm very much a visual person, so um, we're going to um, do a couple, uh, some maps to start with. And this first map, it just kind of shows what happened from the very beginning, um, when the Abraham is first introduced to us, um, way down there in the corner where it says Sumer, I guess you would say that. Um, he, um, Abraham and his father Terah uh, moved up to Ur, and um, in Ur is where Terah passed away. And then God comes to Abr Abram at that point, and I probably will switch those names, so just you, you know who I'm talking about. Um, it was at Ur that God came to Abram and said, okay, I want you to move to Canaan. Um, and so he began his journey there and came back down here to the, the Canaan area to Shechem. So to review, this is just a real short encapsulation of what's happened so far with Abram. Uh, first, God calls Abram, and they move to Shechem. And then Abram and Sarah go to Egypt. That was during the famine. And uh, Pharaoh takes Sarah um, into his palace. Um, and then Abram and Lot separate. Abram rescues Lot after Sodom and um, Gomorrah are ransacked after a war. And then God appears in a vision to Abram and reaffirms his promise of children and land. And then he gives, um, Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abram, and we read about that last week. And then Ishmael is born, and at that point, Abram is 86 years old. Um, and then the next map shows um, where Abram and Abraham and Lot are in our story today. So you can see um, Abraham up there in Hebron and Lot down where Sodom and Gomorrah is. Sodom and Gomorrah is no longer there after our story today. So this is where archaeologists think that it, that, that it was. And then I also like to know where in the world these things are compared to today's um, map. So the next map kind of shows you from that very first one that showed their, their pattern. This are, these are the countries that they, if they were doing it today, where they would have traveled through. So they would have gone through Iraq and Syria and then back down to, to Israel. Um, so now we're, I want to set the stage for what's going on today. Um, this is going to, this is 13 years after Ishmael is, um, was born. So Sarah had already had many years of infertility, had given Hagar, and this, this is 13 years later. Um, Abram is uh, 99 years old. Um, Abram and Sarah still have had no children. 
Um, the theme throughout these chapters is righteousness. And then um, the other thing that happens quite a bit during these chapters is that God directly speaks. Um, he speaks to Abram regarding the covenant circumcision um, through the three men, to Abraham and Sarah, and then through the two men or angels that um, go to Lot and his family in Sodom. And then he speaks mightily through the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then in a dream to King uh, Abimelech. So at the beginning of our passage, um, this is where God origi um, originates his covenant. Now, he's already talked with Abraham many times about what you know, he's going to do for him. But here he actually um, establishes a covenant. And um, so the, the verse, um, by the way, I'm not, I, don't, I didn't put a lot of my scriptures. This is the, one of the few scriptures I put up here. So if you want to open your Bibles to um, Genesis 17, I just decided it was going to be way too much for Lisa to have to flip through. So you guys can just, um, I'll try to refer to it. So if you want to look, you can do that. Um, but in this verse, the very beginning of our passage today, says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, if you remember way back in the fall, um, God when he went through all the genealogies up until um, Noah, it referred to Enoch and Noah both walked with God. And we talked a little bit about what that meant. But here, um, it is saying um, Abraham is to walk before God. So a little difference there. Instead of walking with God, it's walking before God. And so I wanted to talk just a little bit about what, what does that mean? What's the difference between those two? <laughs> Sam's happy. Um, there is a quote I wanted to read from a, a commentary that, um, that I thought uh, explained it well. It says, if you want to become whole, which is my request for you, you must walk before me. You must place yourself under my exclusive supervision, guidance, and protection. The image is taken from the shepherd who walks behind his herd, directing it with his calls, or from the father under whose eyes the child walks. It is more than the walking with God of Enoch and Noah who were practically led by the hand. And I just, I like that visual there. So what does it mean for us today when we walk before God? Um, walking before God implies that we are living in God's presence, which means that we're allowing him to correct us and to train us in right living and then the second part is to be blameless, and that's translated perfect. Um, in the New Testament, Christ tells us in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul's goal in his work was to present everyone perfect in Christ, from Colossians. God's call to be perfect is to take directions only from God and be devoted to him without reservation. Walking before God and being blameless include allowing God to instruct us on how to live our life, which that's, that's our Christian life. 
Um, and for those of you who are concerned, it doesn't mean that God holds us to a standard of perfection and condemns us when we fail, but it does mean that we allow him to shepherd us to correct our wandering or outright defiance. And if we are listening to that voice and being corrected, then we are being perfected. And as we get towards the end of our story today, we'll see what happens when, when Abram, one of his many times, does not uh, um, hold up to that standard, what God does. Okay, then back to our story, the covenant between God and Abram. Um, this is many years after God had first told Abram that he was going to be a father of many nations. Um, and God now reaffirms this promise by changing both Abram's and Sarai's names and also institutes circumcision. So God gives them new names. So what's the significance of a name change? Typically in our society today, we'd ha we'll have a name change um, that... Um, I'm going off my notes here. Off. Try again. A name change meant to change a person's status or circumstances. Um, so here, the name changes serve as reminders of God's pledge of the promise of land and descendants. Um, Abraham meant exalted father, and that referred to his father, Terah. His father was exalted. Um, and it signified that Abraham was ex exalted with respect to his father, he was of distinguished lineage and high birth. And the change to Abraham alters the meeting to a father of a multitude. In other words, Abraham is now a father of multitudes of descendants. The next thing that happens, he doesn't change Sarai's name yet, but he tells Abraham, okay, this is what your part of the covenant is going to be. Um, he is, you are to circumcise every male in, in his household then, and then forever after, whether it's at birth or if he was to bring servants in later on, they were to be um, circumcised. And circumcision was part of the cultures um, surrounding um, them at that time, but usually it was for initiating uh, boys into manhood. So this was the f um, a new thing that they would do it um, at birth. And part of the significance of that is Whereas at manhood, it was more of a personal choice. Um, at birth, it just shows this is just, you know, God's um, promise to you. You, you don't you have nothing to do with, um, with this. I'm just going to take care of you. Um, the other thing about the circumcision is through this, throughout the ages as they would do it, this was another way that um, Abram's descendants could... Um, direct their children and household to keep, um, to, to do what the Lord said. So this was another way of, of teaching them that. Okay, then we get to um, where he changes um, Sarai's name to Sarah. And he tells Abraham directly that he's going to ha really have descendants from Sarah. It's not just going to be from Hagar. And in... Seven, uh, chapter 17, 15, it says, As for Sarah, your wife, Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. 
Now, both names, um, Sarai and Sarah, have connotations of princess, um, but this is the very first time that God tells Sarah that her descendants are actually going to be kings. Okay. This, um, and part of the, with the changing of their names, every time now Sarah and Abraham speak to one another, they're reminded that they've had a name change, and all those around them also are uh, reminded of that. They're reminded that this was because of a direct uh, promise from God. All right. Now, we see in the very beginning here, um, at the beginning of chapter 17, that Abraham fell fa face down. And that was in reverence. He, he knew that it was God talking to him. And after God tells him about um, Sarah having a son, he falls face down again, but this time with laughter. I cannot imagine <laughs> being in God's presence and laughing. I think this is just a hysterical uh, picture in, in my mind. It's just amazing. So here he is laughing, and he says, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old, and will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? S sounded pretty uh, amazing to him. Well, soon after the name changes in Abraham's um, household, the males are circumcised, Abram has three visitors. And at this point, all it tells us is that it's three men, but yet um, Abraham seems to recognize that there is something special about these three men, and he um, offers them great hospitality. He gives them water to wash their dirty feet from traveling. He puts them in, um, in the shade of a tree to rest and then goes and prepares a meal for them. Um, and then, of course, during the meal, the visitors ask about Sarah. Now, for this culture, I think that probably was um, a little bit different thing, too, because to ask about the women was not, would not have been a normal thing. So let me get the passage here in my notes. So in Genesis 18, verse 9, this is the, the interchange with um, the visitors and Abram. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, and Abram, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> um, and I think the important thing of this conversation is just to see that um, Sarah also got the word from, from the Lord. She was, God actually directly told her, you are going to have a son. So it wasn't just um, God talking to Abraham, but I think that's uh, special that he actually talked with Sarah as well. So we see through this that both of them laughed when, with God during this um, exchange. Um, and Abraham's laughter, um, the people who have studied it said, was a little bit more like just a chuckle, like, oh, will I have the pleasure of a son through Sarah? 
where Sarah's laughter was more unbelief. You know, she, she knew what was going on in her, in her body, and she knew this was just not going to happen. You know, maybe she was uh, postmenopausal, or maybe she just um, had given up all hope of, of having a child. But for her, this was just uh, too incredible to believe. Um, but then in um, 1814, there's that gentle rebuke um, from God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's something that I know we can identify with today. There's times in our life where we have to be reminded, is anything too hard for the Lord? Uh, okay, and the, um, then, and, you know, God tells them that they will name the child Isaac. And again, God's foresight, Isaac means he laughs. So both parents laughed. So they get, also get to be reminded of their laughter every time they call their son. So um, now from what I can tell from the text, it looks like the visitors um, just stayed for the meal that Abraham had provided, and then they prepared to go on to their journey. And there were three visitors with Abram, but only two go on to Sodom. The third man stays, and that's where he has the um, exchange with Abraham about sparing Sodom. Now there's um, probably a couple reasons why Abraham uh, attempted to save Sodom. One is just that his nephew Lot lived there, and he wanted to spare him. Um, but also, if you remember from last week, he had also rescued these people um, who had been captured after war. So he had a vested interest um, in their well-being. Um, and then the, the logical question is, was Abraham bartering with God when he did the numbers down from 50 to 40 and on, on down to 10? And God knew at the very beginning, exactly what was going to happen in Sodom. He knew that there weren't even 10 righteous people there. Um, he barely found four. Um, and so the conversation really, more than being bartering, is it shows us years later and showed Abram at the time that Sodom really deserved this destruction. There were not righteous men there or people, period. And... Um, we see also later on that this, the sin from Sodom can, um, is carried on um, when Lot's um, daughters, um, and they're a little seen later on, um, but had Lot remained in Sodom, the, um, it just, the unrighteousness would have just continued to seep through him. You know, he was already being influenced by it, but he would have been influenced all the more had he continued there. Okay, now when the visitors reach Sodom, it's at this point in the story that they're referred to as angels. And they are in, their intention is to sleep in the town square. And I can imagine that had they done that, that there would have been a total repeat of what happened outside Lot's door. Um, so either way, it was going to show the sexual depravity of this society. Um, the mob um, outside Lot's house demanding the visitors show that they were very depraved, and this mob included all the men of Sodom, young and old, and I'm assuming it also included the future son-in-laws of Lot. Um, so Lot leaves the visitors inside when they're accosted there, and he tries to reason with the men, and he even offers his daughters if the mobs would leave the visitors alone. I can't imagine that. I just absolutely cannot imagine that. Um, 
And the men of the city try to get past Lot to break down his door. And then another miraculous thing, the angels blind all the men and they can't find the door. At this point, the angels pull Lot back into the house and um, have further conversation with him regarding um, what's going to be happening. The angels urge Lot to get any of his family that's in the um, city um, to get them out, whether they're in his house or not. So he goes out to his son-in-laws and tries to convince them, you, you need to come with us. We need to flee. And, of course, they think he's joking. They saw nothing wrong with, with what was going on in the city. Um, despite all, everything that happened, all, all that went on with the men outside the door and everything, Lot is still reluctant to, to leave Sodom. So I can imagine if he's reluctant, he maybe wasn't a very good convincer to the son-in-laws either. Um, and so when, when it becomes dawn, the angels say, you need to hurry, take your wife and your two daughters, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. And this is in Genesis uh, 19, and in verse 16, he says, when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters, and they led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Now, I think it's really interesting that there were two angels, but so between them, four hands, and there were four people. So they each grabbed one of their hands and led them out of the city. And remember that third man that stayed back and talked with Abraham? I wonder, had God had any inkling, of course he knew, if the, if the son-in-laws would have um, fled, I kind of wonder, would that third man have gone to Sodom? So there could have been six hands <laughs> to drag him out. Who knows? That's speculation on my part. part. Um, okay, so now, um, after they, they, they start leaving Sodom, Lot barters with the angels to go to the small town nearby, which is Zor, and the angels agree. And this is a picture, and this is totally an artist's rendering here, of what things might have looked. Um, and again, I'm visual, so it just helps me to have some idea of what it looks like. Um, now, in this area, there was um, a lot of salt, um, a lot of sulfur. And so, th so think about matchsticks. You know how when you strike a matchstick, it doesn't take much. And that's kind of what was going on there. It just They were also, I, just this morning I was reading, they were uh, mining, oh, what was the name of it? Bitumen, B-I-T-U-M-E-N, which was kind of like a tar surface, as well as salt. And both of those things were very flammable. And um, there actually is some speculation. This is actually the scientists not trying to prove the Bible, but trying to explain it away. Um, say that there, um, had there been an earthquake in the area because of all the different types of um, rock formations and that tar and the salt, um, had there been an earthquake, it would have just like um, dissolved the, the land. It would have just kind of melted away. And so, of course, they say that's what happened. Well, the fact that it happened right when God wanted it to happen tell me, tells, it, tells me it's, it was God. Okay, now, as they are leaving, we come to the famous verse about Lot's wife. 
And this is down in verse 26, 1926. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And, you know, I always thought this was just kind of a, oh, I wonder what's happening back there. And we, as I was studied this more, it was really more not just a quick glance over her shoulder, but a probably stopping, turning around, and just like, oh, I want to go back. Now, again, part of the, the explanation here is that um, as she did this, it was kind of a natural um, consequence of her actions, of why she actually got consumed. And I want to read a, a, a quote here about that. It says, what? Get my mouth right. Lot's wife is not singled out to be transformed into salt as a punishment per se, but instead is overrun by the destruction sweeping the city. Given that God is raining sulfurous fire upon the land, and Lot himself expresses his fear that he cannot outrun the storm, it makes sense that should one member of Lot's party stop to look back one last time, it would slow that person down long enough to suffer the same fate as Sodom's other inhabitants. Lot's wife does not turn to salt as a supernatural punishment for ignoring a divine command, but as a repercussion of her lack of faith in the angel's words. Lot's wife's death is simply the consequence of her own slowing down. Now, the destruction of bur the burning brimstone or sulfur, you'll find different Bibles translates that differently, um, was intense. Um, Abram, from where he had stood talking with the, the third angel, he goes back there and he looks towards um, Sodom the next day and he sees a cloud of, of smoke. And this is from miles away. If you remember our, our, our map up there, he was quite a distance away. Um, so eventually Lot and his daughters retreat to the mountains, even though they first went to that little town of Zor. And what this is happening now in that area is that there are big areas in that region that no vegetation can live. So it's quite possible that um, we don't really know the length of time that they were actually lived in Zor, but there would not have been any vegetation, there would not have been gardens, whatever, so that might have been part of the reason why they retreated to the, to the mountains. Okay, so they get to the mountains, and um, the, the thought is that the, the daughters and Lot, they were all by themselves, and they really thought that all of mankind had been wiped out except for them, and that that was why the daughters said, oh, we must have children. So their um, uh, what are they, husbands, they've been killed, they're gone, there's only their dad there, so, that, so they come up with this plan. And again, another one of those things, we just shake our head, go, how could they even think of that? Um, and I, I liked this connection that they made with this one quote. It says, the one who had offered his daughters for the sexual gratification of his wicked neighbors now becomes the object of his daughter's incentuous relationship. To be seduced by one's daughters in an incentuous relations with pregnancy following is bad enough, 
not to know that the seduction has occurred is worse. To fall prey to the whole plot a second time is worse than ever. Now, from this um, incestuous relationship, um, the sons of the daughters, there's Moab and Ben-Ami, and these two men become um, the Moabites and the Amenites, and there's lots of different uh, references to these people. They come up again and again later on in Scripture. I counted, I think, like 17 different um, Bibles in, in the Old Testament that they are mentioned in. And they ended up um, settling on the east side of the Dead Sea, and that's where the current nation of Jordan is. Okay, so now we're going to leave Lot, and we're going to go back to Sarah and Abraham. So Abraham sees this um, cloud, and we don't know how long, but sometime after that, he and Sarah um, move uh, to the land where King Abimelech is, is there. And, of course, again, they say that they're brother and sister, rather than trusting God to uh, protect them. And I find what's interesting here is that God speaks directly to King Abimelech. And, um, of course, we know, we know the dream. He says, this is not right. You need to make this right. And the obvious is that had God not intervened, either Sarah would not have had um, the promised son through Abraham, or it would have been in question who that son was. So um, again, God has his plan, and he um, totally works, works it out. Now, towards, at the beginning, we talked about Abraham walking with God and what that was. And so I just kind of wanted to go back over these verses and just kind of point out these are the different ways that, that Abraham was actually uh, walking with God. Um, in the very beginning, we see that he falls face down before God. He was being uh, respectful, reverent. Then he obeys God and circumcises his household. And then even though he was unaware that the visitors were God's messengers, he shows them great hospitality. And then he pleads for the lives of the righteous in Sodom. But then we see that he fails. His walk with God is not consistent, and he fails to trust God to protect him and Sarah with King Abimelech. But God is always a God of redemption. So he, part of King Abimelech making things right is that Abraham must now pray for him. So Abraham prays for him to heal the closed wombs of Abimelech's household. And um, I think that's also interesting because Abraham is praying this for King Abimelech's household before Sarah um, has her child. Uh, walk, and I think this shows, too, that walking with God um, includes not just doing the right things, but coming back to him when we've strayed and allowing him to bring us back. Um, that was, that's all I have to share on the passage itself. I just wanted to encourage you that um, as you are in your small groups today, um, just to think about either 
ways that you have strayed recently, or maybe just what is your pattern of straying? In what circumstances do you find you're, you're kind of getting yourself away from God? And then um, if you've looked through the questions, you'll see that I also have a little thing at the end where you can just kind of share with one another what strengths you see in each other. I, I think that's something we as women, it's just a good thing to build one another up. And this isn't meant to be a, a, a difficult thing, but just what comes to your mind as you look around the, the room and you see your, the women in your group. What special things do you see in them? So that is it. You are dismissed to go to your rooms.